Hello and welcome to the Life Teacher Podcast. My name is Hector Suko, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Jeremy Hall. Jeremy joined Townview as Associate Professor of Faith Development in summer 2018. His vocational ministry began in Birmingham, Alabama as a church planter while studying religion at Samford University. He has since filled a variety of roles in the Atlanta area churches and earned his MDIV from Mercer's McAfee School of Theology. Jeremy is married to his high school sweetheart, Ashley. Jeremy is a Doctorate of Ministry candidate in Mercer's Justice and Peacemaking program at the McAfee School of Theology. Jeremy's church was booted from their denomination, SBC, the largest pro- Protestant domination in 2020 for welcoming LGBTQ plus members. Please help me welcome Jeremy to the podcast. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Hector. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well. Thank you. Thank you for coming out to my podcast. Now, the first question is the same for all my guests. So, Jeremy, tell us, who is Jeremy Hall? Well, I appreciated the introduction. It sounds very fancy when you read it out loud. Um, I am a husband and a father, a pastor and a student. So I keep myself fairly busy. I care deeply about um, ethics and how we conduct ourselves as the church. I I am a pastor. I've been in ministry for over 10 years now. I I tricked a church into hiring me when I was 18. Uh, So I've been doing this. I'll turn 31 next, this weekend. So I've been doing this a little while. And it is where I have found myself to be the most alive, is that place where faith and family and community sort of intersect. Jeremy, go ahead and tell us about the decision to be a man of God. The decision to be a man of God. I like the drama in the, the title there. So that there's an experience that we like to call calling. Um, and I, I felt called towards ministry. I felt this vocation uh, rising up in me as early as maybe some flashes of it in middle school, but as early as, uh, as high school, I was very set on where I was going to go as far as my, my calling, as far as my career and my education and my work. Um, though when I had the first inklings of I'm going to be some sort of minister, I don't think I could have possibly imagined the kind of place I would end up uh, today. The, the Jeremy of, let's, let's say 2005, I knew that God wanted me to be a pastor. That Jeremy would be furious with who I am today, which is an interesting place to be. Um, I got asked recently uh, what 30-year-old Jeremy would say to 15-year-old Jeremy. And really, there's nothing he would have listened to, but I probably would have told him to chill out. I come from a, a very conservative, fundamentalist, evangelical background, and I find myself in a place much more life-giving and free and beautiful than the life I was trying to build when I set out on this journey. And so I, I thank God for directing me into 
this sort of life that I've found. And so to be clear, you are Protestant, correct? Well, I am a Baptist minister. There's some, there's some weeds to get into there about who is and isn't a Protestant. Um, I've got and I, that <laughs> I've got a whole soapbox about Baptists not really being Protestants, but yes, I'm not a Catholic. Okay, so let's start at the very top of the pyramid. First, there's Christianity, correct? Yes. Okay. So there are people who are doing their best to follow Jesus. Right. And then there's like, what, 25 or more branches down in what into what we call denominations, correct? Hundreds. Hundreds of denominations Hundreds. of Christianity. There are dozens of kinds of Baptists. Okay, so it's kind of like a prime factorization with yeah. the number, <laughs> you know, 1,284,000. It has to be even number, right? But Exactly, yeah. We, we split frequently enough that it's, it's exponential. But yeah, if you went all the way up to, to Jesus, you can... Because you can follow this as a story of division, or you can follow it historically. And so Jesus starts a movement, and his earliest followers start communities. And they develop into an institution, um, a strong community with values and vision and a mission in the world. They become institutionalized when uh, Constantine first makes Christianity not illegal and then makes it the official um, religion of Rome. And some will argue that this is one of the best things that ever happened to the church. Some will argue that it's the worst thing that's ever happened to the church. And so now the church is Roman and we'll start to think about this sort of experience as Catholic. The word Catholic means universal. So uh, a lot of mainline Protestant churches use a creed some say it every week, called the Apostles' Creed. It's a very old uh, statement of belief for the church. And it says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And even the Protestants say that because it means the big capital C, the whole family of God, church. Now, we do not stay Catholic very long because there's three big branches that break off right away. And uh, we call this um, early splitting when the Roman Empire falls to pieces. Uh, the great schism between East and West, Rome and Constantinople, argue over who's actually the head of the church and you get the eastern or orthodox tradition and the western or roman or catholic tradition now those will each split a lot of denominations definitely and a, a very rich and and deep history but there is one denomination that really hasn't split off and you're talking about maybe 40 even 50 percent of christianity which is Catholicism, right? Mm -hmm. If you are a quote unquote Catholic, you go to a Catholic church, you do the sign of the cross. A lot of churches like to show Jesus on the crucifix and we follow the Roman Catholic church and the Pope and all that. Yes. Yes. So that's the, the largest single grouping of Christians would identify as Catholic, though it's very important not to think of them as a monolith. Yes, of course. It is a diverse tradition. Of course. Yes. Now, going back to the one person that started it all, and when you talk to doctorates of religion, when you talk about people like Reza Aslan, they make a very important point to distinguish the two men. And we're talking about the first being Jesus of Nazareth, which is 
what his name was, and versus Christ the Messiah, a name given to him after he died. So let's go a little bit into that, Jeremy. Let me get your input and your opinion on the difference and the similarities of Jesus of Nazareth versus, not versus, but, and Christ the Messiah. Right. The the historical human and the theological concept, which for me, they overlap in various and many ways. The I use the Gospels, which were written well after the ministry of Jesus, potentially as early, the earliest accounts, potentially, the earliest you could date it, 60 years-ish after, latest come potentially a couple hundred years after Jesus. Um, though it's important not to discount uh, the strength of an oral tradition, We've, we know that oral tradition is a reliable source of story and knowledge, um, but that there is story that we bring into it, that stories are edited and compiled and given meaning. Um, a lot of times church folks get scared of the word myth because you think about myths as fairy tales or legends, but the word myth, uh, is it distinguishes a story that gives us meaning. And so the, the life of Jesus bar Joseph, the son of a laborer who lived in Nazareth sometime in the first century, probably born uh, somewhere three or four BC. So Jesus was probably born before Christ. Don't you love that? That's fun. Every year for our kids here at the church, uh, we throw a birthday party around Christmas for Jesus. And I'm very particular to send out invitations to the kids that say that it's like, what would it be this year? Uh, Jesus's 2024th birthday, just to make sure someone's like, but Jesus was born in zero. No, <laughs> probably wasn't. Um, but there, there was a man named Jesus who believed himself to be in the, uh, the line of the great prophets of Israel and Judah. Um, and his ministry fundamentally changes the course of human history. There's no one with a greater impact on civilization than Jesus. And his followers go on to change the world and upset. Like, how if you are some peasant preacher in northern Judah, an occupied state, it's important. Okay, it's important to point out, if you want to understand Jesus, you must understand that he is the child of a day laborer and a refugee from violence who is living and ministering as a Middle Eastern person of color in an, a country occupied and defeated by a military superpower of white people from the West. That needs to matter to the American church. We need to think about these things very carefully. Um, that's the context that Jesus comes out of. And his, his ministry is so radical and so powerful to the people around him that the empire finds it a, a risk to their hold on this part of the world, which a lot of times we get theologically hung up on how often Israel and Judah 
are the the land that belongs to the people of God in the Bible, how often it's conquered, and we're like, wow, is we think there's there are theological understandings of why these things happen, but also it is the place on the map where Europe, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa touch. It's incredibly valuable land. It's not odd that they are routinely conquered. Um, and so the Romans see this Messiah figure, this preacher, this prophet as dangerous. He's got a message that is galvanizing people, that's inspiring people, that's empowering people. And so he's executed in, in total humiliation. We have romanticized the cross. It is not, everyone knows it's not pretty. Everyone knows it's not nice, but crucifixion is meant to be utterly humiliating. No one can trust someone that has been crucified. You are tortured, you are destroyed, you are naked, you are displayed. And usually when you die, you are left on that cross. And all of our art and our movies, the cross is way up in the sky, but most people are crucified at eye level. So you're right there. It's disgusting, it's horrible. And this should destroy and discredit the, these people that are following Jesus who, who are believing that maybe this man could be the son of David that we've been waiting for who will liberate us from the Romans, who will show us the way. There's this tradition called the way that develops out of the prophets. And Jesus intentionally uses that language. Uh, people around him like John the Baptist intentionally use the language of the way the earliest followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. But messiahs don't die. The messiah is supposed to be a conquering king. He's supposed to roll into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and reestablish them as a meaningful empire in their section of the world. But this isn't what Jesus does. And so the story should end. But Jesus' earliest followers believed so strongly that they're all, they're all martyred or exiled for their belief that their Messiah has come back to life, that this Jesus who died was dead a while and then wasn't anymore. And they believed this so strongly that they changed the world. And we know that they believed this early and they believed this fast and they believed this deeply right from the start. The earliest writings, the earliest traditions, the earliest art is resurrection-themed. And if you can believe in resurrection, you can defeat an empire. If you're not afraid to die, you can change the world. That's quotable. Hey, hey. And so that's how you get that, that evolution is all of these followers are captivated by this story and they hold on to them. So think about, think about if you, let, let's just use exactly what we're talking about. If you ha lived in a town and Jesus came to visit and you thought he was or might be a prophet or the Messiah, you'd remember what he said, but you wouldn't have everything he said. So you'd have what he taught and what he did in your community. And so your community in believing that this man is worth following would hold on to those stories and would develop a tradition around that experience. And the next town would do the same thing 
with what they heard and what they saw. Maybe they think of Jesus as an exorcist and your community thinks of him as a healer and the next thinks of him as a preacher and the next as a prophet. And over time, as these communities reach each other, the stories are compiled. And then, and a lot of, once again, we can't think of this as discrediting, the accounts get edited together to make sense. Um, the, the ancient Near East does not think about history the same way that we do. They are much more concerned with truth than facts. So a lot of people get hung up on factual issues, especially in the Old Testament. There are things, uh, there are numbers that simply don't make sense. There are years that don't make sense. There are names that don't make sense. There's an account of a battle where more people show up to fight than live in that hemisphere at the time. Like the, the number isn't telling you the fact, it's telling you the truth that, whoa, that's a lot of people. And so the, the people that compile the gospels are, they don't think they're being sneaky when they put the story in an order that makes the most sense rather than trying to parse out exactly who said what, when. And so we inherit a tradition that is mythic, not in that it isn't true, but in that it's true. The focus is truth rather than fact. And then as a believer, I believe that the Holy Spirit is involved in preserving the reality of the experience through the texts and the community. Does that, did I answer your question? Very much so. Thank you very much. Awesome. I like when it works. Next, we're going to go a little bit above and beyond and talk about the universe itself. Now we are humans on this earth. We are occupied by seven other planets in what we call our solar system. And we revolve around a star. This star that we call the sun is one of billions of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And out further than that, we have hundreds of billions of galaxies in the known universe. That's important because there could be things out there that is unknown. Right. Having said that, we are minuscule. We are extremely unfathomably tiny in the entire universe. So Jeremy, my question to you is, if God is the ultimate creator, is he even to be understood by creating all of these galaxies, all of these stars and solar system and planets? What's your take on that? Awesome. That's a really, that's a very romantic question. I like it. Uh, that so many um, Christians have sort of missed the forest for the trees when talking about the God of nature, the, the God that has put all of these things into place. We've, for all of our big, beautiful speech about creation and the creator and beauty, we don't always respect the, the created universe enough, and we miss out on the beauty and what some of the beauty is telling us. The, the Psalms tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so I think it's, it is incredibly important to realize how small we are. That's a great point, Hector. And to realize that the, the immensity of what this God is, 
does mean that, like even the Bible itself says that God is wrapped in imperceivable darkness. God is mystery. Jeremy, let me stop you right there for one second. Can you tell me the exact chapter and verse where you said God is wrapped in darkness? Okay, I got you. So what I referenced was Psalm 18, uh, verse 11 here says, he wrapped himself in darkness that covered him like a tent. He was hidden by dark clouds and with heavy water. The, um, it's very interesting that the word dark is used because now scientists are trying to figure out if there is something that they are calling dark matter and dark energy hmm. out in the universe. I find that very profound. Go on with your your train of thought concerning God and beauty and the universe. Yeah, there's there is an idea that that we get from Paul and also from the Psalms that the beauty of the creation itself is a sort of gospel that we should be able to be moved to awe and realization by our finitude, by the beauty of our world and the mystery of our world that you just mentioned dark matter the deeper we go the more there is and maybe maybe we can get to the bottom of it but we haven't yet and i mean by the time things get quantum we might as well be dealing with miracles and magic and that's not to that's not to do some sort of campy like you have to believe in god because a quantum entanglement proves that Spooky action at a distance, the things are connected and molecules have salt. Just the complexity. You, you had mentioned um, in our emails the watchmaker and the watch idea. And that, that's this idea that you should could potentially look at the complexity of the universe and assume something complex made it. So that, that's the watchmaker and the watch idea. If you found a watch, you wouldn't say, wow, this magically happened. You would think, wow, someone built this thing. And it's intricate and it's beautiful and it's complex and it's specific. A lot of people point to this uh, thing called the science of fine tuning, which isn't quite as perfect as a lot of preachers will try to make it out to be. But you look at Earth and it is placed um, to where it is just the right distance within a parameter from the sun to where it's not too cold and not too hot for life. Water and blood salinity is similar, thing, things like that. The, our environment is perfectly designed for us, but also we have perfectly evolved into our environment. So there's, there's something going on in the cosmos that is good and beautiful, and that should point us towards a God that is active, good, and beautiful. Um, just to clarify just a little bit on the watchmaker analogy mm -hmm. is that humans are the watch in that scenario and god is the creator of the hypothetical watch can a watch understand completely its creator and we know that the answer is no a watch is a watch it was designed and built that way it has no it cannot fathom its creator and this is the same argument you can say where we as humans cannot possibly fathom the complexity of our own creator. That's the analogy. Yeah, God is so far outside and beyond that there, 
one of the ways that the earliest church came to understand God was with the word mystery. Um, at at these early councils, we when we think about Christians trying to decide what they believe, we think about nasty things like the Crusades or the Inquisition. But the early church, when she gathered to start deciding on, we gotta have some, we gotta have some ground rules of what it means to be a part of this movement, and they started trying to solidify who was Jesus, what is the Holy Spirit, what is Scripture, how does prayer work, who gets to be in charge, things like that. Um, and these debates got very heated. There's a story about the historical figure that will come uh, to be the the figure, the inspiration behind Santa Claus gets in a fist fight over whether Jesus is human or not. Santa Claus knocked a guy out for saying that Jesus wasn't actually human, but only looked human, punched him out cold. Um, so Merry Christmas. <laughs> I've come here to deliver presents and punch heretics and I'm all out of presents. But when they gathered and they came up with the, the language around the Trinity, the idea that God exists in three co-equal persons or personalities uh, that are not subordinate to each other but are all fully god but yet unique the the language they came up with was it the doctrine literally says this can only be understood through faith as it is a mystery um and so much of connecting with the the first cause with the divine watchmaker involves mystery but at the same time this is a god who wants to be known this is a God that seeks relationship. This is a God who has reached out to the creation. The, uh, the part of the watchmaker analogy, if you want to play with it, is that the watch doesn't need the watchmaker. The watch is built, it is wound, and it is set off, and it, its system will run until entropy kills it. But the God of the Bible is far more personal, even in this God's mystery this God has come close. This God interacts with humans and human history. This God has guided the formation of texts to teach us what this God is like and has gone so far as to, as uh, Paul says, lay down Godhood to become Jesus among us. The One of Jesus's titles in the, um, the original language is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, and that's one of the primary parts of the story is that this God who is unknowable chooses to find ways to make God's self known. The, the intro to the gospel of John even says it, the, the, no one has ever seen God, but this God has chosen to come and live with us so that we can know some of this God. And the, the old Testament is about God looking for a people is about God calling people to show the world what this God is like. That's what it means at Mount Sinai when God says, "You could, if you obey me fully, if you can live as my people, if you enter this covenant with me, I will. you will be my people. I will be your God, and you will be a nation of priests. A priest's job, if you think about an ancient temple, is to conduct the work of their God, to show people what their God is like. This is a God who wants to be known. Very interesting. I was going to touch a little bit more upon the science and the fact that science cannot answer all the questions. Mm -hmm. Like what came before the Big Bang, right? Nobody knows. No scientist knows. 
Can you put God there? Of course you can. What started life on Earth? Yeah, some scientists have theories on how life ultimately began. Like, where did the single, where did the first single-celled organism? And the chain come? of protein that was close to a volcano that got struck by lightning. Yes, in a primordial sloop. Yeah, in, a, in the primordial primordial soup, right? Ooze. And you know, if you know the facts, right? If if Earth was one mile closer to the sun, it would be way too hot for human life to exist. If Earth was one mile farther from the sun, it would be too cold for life to exist. Earth and its tilt and its rotation. Yeah, it seems like a lot of things are dialed in. To come together to fit. Now, you can all always say, well, look at your argument. There are billions of galaxies in the world. There are hundreds of even trillions of solar system and planets it was bound to happen i can attest to that yeah if there are if you're saying the chance of life happening is one in a trillion well guess what there are trillions there's lots of trillions there's trillions of planets out there in the universe so yeah the odds are with us but i'm okay with people believing in, hey, you know what? God had his hand in the Big Bang. God had his hand in having Earth in the perfect place to revolve around the sun. God had his hand in its tilt, and God had his hand in the first single-celled organism that jump-started life on Earth. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you, you might call uh, my stance something like theistic evolution that God operates through the natural causes, that God has designed the system in such a way to tell the story that God is telling and that God guides it, that God participates in it, that God watches with great anticipation as life flourishes and evolves and gains complexity. And, and some people will, and this is, this is that big science religion debate, will get very hung up on say, the Genesis 1 account, which says seven days is how long it took, and God created humans exactly as they currently exist. But it's a, it's so, it's one, it's a poem. It's clearly a poem. It wasn't the first thing written. I, for some people, that's mind-blowing. The Genesis 1 account is a pretty late writing. Genesis 2, the story of Adam and Eve, that's a much earlier account. That's a very early writing. But Genesis 1 is a later edition, probably from the, um, the, a the time of the exile. So people in exile in Babylon, people defeated, people who have been conquered, people who have been hauled off as exiles to a foreign land and subjugated, they're starting to tell their story again. And so the question becomes, who... What's going to happen to us? Well, it's okay because our God is the one who did all of this. And you can even see it. There's a really good argument that Genesis 1 is about the God of the Old Testament defeating the Babylonian pantheon. Uh, they have a water serpent, uh, Tiamat. God defeats Tiamat, slices her in half, and she becomes the waters above and below. They have a God of the earth. Well, guess what? God did that. They worship the sun, the moon. Well, they're just they're pawns in God's cosmic game. 
there's something going on beyond it's not science and it's not meant to be and it's like i mentioned earlier the ancients idea about facts is very different than ours and they weren't very concerned with them because they were concerned with truth rather than facts and there's a uh, there's a theological idea out there um that has been very clearly articulated by calvin there's probably someone before him that said it or thought it too that I just don't know about. But the Calvinist version is called divine condescension. Uh, some people call it divine baby talk. That God, when God communicates with humans, gives us what we need to understand what he needs us to understand. Uh, that God doesn't talk to whoever's writing Genesis 1 and say, big bang, entropy, uh, perfect zero, gravity, black holes, that God is doing all of this. But when God communicates to humans, because have you ever stood, your background in our Zoom call today is a seashore. If you stand on the beach and look out, the world feels like a flat plate with an edge off at the horizon. If you look up at a clear sky, it feels like a dome. God shows up to that person and says, you know that, that flat plate you're standing on? I put that there for you. That water that provides life, that brings you food, that gives you water. You see, it comes here, but no further. It doesn't overwhelm you because I put it there. That dome that protects you from that blue water above, I put that there. That's the truth of the story, that God is behind it. The mechanics don't matter because it's poetry. I heard something, and tell me if you've heard the same or anything different that when the translators were trying to look for the translation today, it really didn't mean day as in God created the earth in seven days. What the original authors wrote was phase that the, that God created the earth and humans in phases. Did you hear anything about that? A lot. Uh, so translation is difficult work. All translation is interpretation. It's very difficult to ever do a one-to-one -one translation of a lot of ancient texts. Ancient languages, and excuse the paper noise, I'm, I've got my Hebrew Bible out and I'm going to look for you. Um, ancient languages like Koine Greek and Biblical Hebrew have incredibly small vocabularies. Um, I don't have a real number in front of me, but it's like tens of thousands of words, fewer than you would find in your local paper. And so they got, so their, their, their alphabet is also their number system. Their ideas, you can get whole ideas in single words. A lot of, a lot of Hebrew writing is really beautiful in its complexity because it's self-referential. Everything points somewhere else. There's cross-reference hidden in the text itself. There's puns, there's jokes. The Old Testament is full of jokes. And <laughs> if you try to read all of it straight like it's prose, you're going to have a bad time. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 1. Let's see. Let's find the word day. Day. Okay. All right. The, yeah, I've never heard the phase thing. And Interesting. Yeah, the word day... It pretty much, it's, it's the same word 
as you would use for like today I went to the store in two days it'll be whatever day two days from now is um but you have to remember that these words do a lot of work and so a simple word like day does a lot of heavy lifting in Hebrew because so it can mean many it, different things is that what you're saying like right, the word you, as simple as day sounds for us it's very contrite but back then you're saying day could actually mean a lot of different things yeah especially in a poetic context because genesis 1 is clearly a poem it's written in a hebrew poetry style called parallelism and you can like you can put it on a whiteboard and you can draw lines and you can see the structure of the poem it's it's very blocky it's very clear well in if what you're saying is true and it's written in a poetic sense that changes the game that's a game changer because you know i mean first thing that pops into my mind is someone writing a poem about battling and beating let's say cancer and they can literally write on day one i got the diagnosis but on day two i didn't give up and on day three i fought back and on day four i was cancer free right yeah yeah it's a and poem that could be the but, story of five years but yeah exactly we but know it would be true Right. If everybody understands it to be a poetic system of writing. Right. And so you have to, this is why theological education is so important. And that, that sounds more pretentious than I mean it to, but in the community of your two, two thoughts, the Bible is big and complex and she, you should read it uh, with other people. I, I want the people in my church who I pastor, I want them to have a regular rhythm in their life where they study the Bible on their own, but not just on their own. They should be doing it in community as well. And that helps us navigate some of these difficult waters because we all have different pieces of the puzzle in experience and education and literacy. Um, and I think pastors should be well-trained to know these sorts of things because it's dangerous to, to miss them, to think that the Bible isn't broken up under different genres will get you in a lot of trouble. If you try to read poetry like history, you're going to have a bad time. That's eye-opening, basically. The, the Bible has sections that are poetic. It has sections that are historical. It has sections that are written in prose. There are dialogues. Half a over a third in the New Testament is us reading someone else's mail and only one side of the conversation. Again, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's, you can say that the Bible is diverse. Yes, it, and it is written, the Protestant Bible is 66 books written over like 1400 years by more than 20 authors ranging from kings to homeless madmen. Yeah, but Jeremy, I mean, you, it's, Really, I, I'm taken aback when you say written by 20 authors, when the idea, the big idea, is that it's truly written by one entity. So, once again, Christianity is not a monolith. And you... You can't find any scholars that will reject the authorship of the text as being human. You'll, it's becoming increasingly difficult to find churches 
that would want to obscure the people that wrote the text. There used to be an idea that, and it used to be a Southern Baptist idea, they would say it explicitly, that the Bible was, what was the right word? That it's, oh, I can't, the, the phrase well, escapes me, but well, let's break it. let's break it down a little bit more. I mean, yes, you can tell me it's written by 20 people. When I say that it's really written by one entity, what I mean is that these 20 or so authors were told through this connection what to write. That's the idea. It's not that it was written by one human or by 20 humans. It that is, it's that these people were told what to write in that book. Some of them were. Some of the authors at least say, God told me, write this down. And I did. John, in Revelation, personal soapbox, the last book of the Bible has no S at the end of it. It is not Revelations. It is Revelation. You say it to me wrong, I will throw things at you. Um, he, he says, the angel told me, write what you see. And, and the angel told me, write this down. And then I was told, do not write this. This part's a secret. Uh, so there, there are sections like that. But the Bible is a human document in response to encountering the divine. And once again, like I said earlier about the Gospels, it is protected and guided by the Holy Spirit. But these are human writers responding to experiences of this, like you said, one being. There's one God that they have encountered in different ways and different circumstances. And if you are a shepherd, you encounter the divine differently than if you are a king. If you are a homeless, traveling, itinerant preacher, prophet, your experience of the divine is different than if you are an official prophet living in the king's court, whose job it is to tell the king what God says. These are going to be different experiences. Very profound. I'm saying, I'm repeating the same words. I, I need a thesaurus next to me, but definitely <laughs> You're good, profound, man. You're good. interesting. This is great. Let's bring it back all the way to today's issues. We have people today that are identifying as quote unquote non-binary. Mm -hmm. And I kind of chuckle because, you know, and it, it is some religious people that say, you know, and this has nothing, there's, there's no real connection between a religious person or a conservative or whatever. But when somebody says, you know, Biology is biology. There's two genders. You're correct. Biology does say that there are, are two genders, but, you know, God is what? Is God a he? As it is told in dozens and dozens of works, or is God truly non-binary? Jeremy, is God non-binary? God is hyper-binary. God is outside of our gender systems. God does not possess sexual organs other than the, the person of Jesus, but God's identity is not wrapped in a gender or gender expectations. And if you try to force God into these, God will break out. The proper pronoun for God is God. I sometimes use they, them pronouns for God. I sometimes use he pronouns for God because that's, the traditional title, the people who wrote the Bible are writing from a patriarchal worldview. God must be male. 
all of their leaders are male. All of them writing are likely male. There's a possibility that the writer of Hebrews is female. There's some good scholarship on that, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and so the he tradition of the Bible might just be a linguistic or cultural phenomenon, or we might say artifact. God is revealed by Jesus as a human male, um, and Jesus will explain that mysterious relationship as son and father and will pray as father. Uh, but that might also be a cultural artifact that if Jesus prayed to God as mother, no one would believe that he was talking to God. So, but, but the Bible is much more interesting than that because God also gets female traits in the Bible. God in Job has a womb. Jeremy, let me stop you for just a second. Can you tell me exactly where it says that God has a womb? Yeah, so that's Job 38, uh, verse 29. And th this is one of my favorite poems in the Bible. There's a poetic story. It it's an epic poem like uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey or Gilgamesh, where a man named Job uh, is taken on a tour of the cosmos by God because Job is mad. There's, there's a divine bet between God and the Satan over why Job follows God. And so all of the good things in Job's life are taken away, and Job is furious and rages against the heavens. He says he wishes he was dead, and he demands, he demands of God. He screams at God to take him to court so that he can make his case that God is wrong for what has happened to him. And God like zooms out to the cosmic level and shows Job like how the universe works and how complicated it is. And keeps asking Job, do you understand any of this? Do you, do you know what I do? Do you know what my job is? Can you explain how turtles know how to go home to spawn? Do you know where the ostrich lives? Do you know what kind of jokes donkeys tell each other after they escape from the cities? And he starts talking about these big cosmic powers. And he says, where do I keep the lightning? Have you ever been to the storage unit where I keep the lightning? How about, have you seen how my womb produces ice and snow? Like, it's crazy. This is incredible. And it's beautiful. And you should read it. Uh, the last movement of Job is this huge epic poem. But yeah, that's one of the places where God gets female traits. One of the names, one of the titles for God in the Old Testament is uh, Shekinah. Uh, a lot of times that's translated as all-powerful. Um, if you, Some traditions love to use the Hebrew names for God in their worship, and they'll talk about the Shekinah glory of God. The word Shekinah means one with many breasts. The title means the many-breasted one. So the Yahweh God of the Old Testament is named the many-breasted God. And the, I, yeah, you're making a crazy face. And Hector, what do you think the idea there is? Again, going back to what you said, the Bible is diverse, written by so many people who experienced different things and was ultimately those writings were added to the Bible to give a better or more clear picture of who God really is. Yeah, and God is like a, an animal who can care for many young, a multi-breasted one who can feed and provide Without God doesn't need anything to provide. God create makes the provision because God is the multi-breasted one. And so we 
there's female language through the Old Testament, and we get into the New Testament. Jesus uh, looks over the city of Jerusalem as he prepares to enter it for the last time, and he says, how I long to bring you under my wings like a mother hen. Jesus uses a female mother image for his own love for his people. And going back to the patriarchy thing, I mean, you can even see it in the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who mm -hmm. art in heaven. And again, it's, again, going back to the traditional thing and stuff like that. Again, interesting, but your point of view is greatly, greatly appreciated. Jeremy, it's time to talk about what happened to you. Uh -huh. What happened? How, what was your mind going through when you decided to affirm the LGBTQ plus community? I'm going to answer that in two parts, if that's okay with you. Please. Because there's, there's parallel journeys here for me and the community that I pastor. Um, I made the decision before my church did. And here's, here's a dirty little secret about the church um, in general. Most pastors, the, the conservative liberal binary is not useful here. But to use language that most people are familiar with, most pastors are more liberal than their congregations. There are many pastors who personally would affirm LGBTQ persons and couples and members who could, if they dared say anything, they'd be gone tomorrow. As, and that, that's a threat that all pastors live under. You have to know when to be pastoral and when to be prophetic. Uh, when to be gentle with your people, and when to be direct and serious and call out injustices in the world. So anyway, um, I was hired by this church with them, with the hiring committee, knowing what my position was, but also my tenderness towards people who weren't in the same place. Because like I said, I was raised very evangelical, very conservative, fundamentalist, um, and I knew what the Bible said. Part of what my evangelical upbringing has given me that I cling to still, um, a lot of things had to be deconstructed in my own life. One of the things that survived into reconstruction for me was how seriously I take the Bible. And so if the Bible says it, I have to do something about it. So the Bible says, to, a man shall not lie with a man that's an abomination. Uh, and Leviticus adds, you should kill them. Um, the, there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's frequently cited where God destroys a whole city, maybe, because of uh, same-sex eroticism. Uh, there's Well, just the, to be a little bit clear, some scholars argue that it wasn't homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, it, it definitely was, wasn't. That's a ridiculous reading. Yeah, God's anger towards the two cities has to do with sexual assault and violence and not necessarily homosexuality we know that men were assaulting men men were assaulting women it, it had nothing to do with sexual orientation right absolutely even the the rest of the bible knows that it's not about it's not an lgbtq issue isaiah chapter one says that sodom and gomorrah were destroyed for ignoring the vulnerable jeremiah 23 says they were destroyed for a failure to repent ezekiel 16 says it was a lack of hospitality and Jesus in Matthew 10 says they were destroyed for their failure to receive God. So, yeah, that's not about gay folks. 
And another um, point that another scholar I saw on a documentary point out is that when you talk about men in prison assaulting each other, they're not homosexual. They're doing it because of violence and power. Right. And that, that's the context of a lot of the passages in the Bible. They're, just real quick. Re- hold on. No, I got this. So I'll get there in my story. I knew, I knew what the Bible said, and it seems clear. In certain translations, popular translations, in English, the Bible is clear. Leviticus 18 and 20, abomination. Sodom and Gomorrah, city destroyed. Romans, unnatural. 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, homosexuals shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It was clear. And so I was in a place where I had decided I had to take those seriously, but I, was, I wasn't going to be mean. I was going to be as kind and loving as I could and try to help um, any gay people that would want to be helped uh, to choose a different way because I believed it was a choice at that time because that was the, the water I swam in. That was the world I was brought up in. But I get to seminary and I study the original languages and I realize that's not what those passages are talking about. I think my story is unique or at least relatively unique in that my head went before my heart. Most people feel it, they know it before they can say it, before they understand it. Their heart goes on to make this decision, to make this change before their head does. But when I became affirming, I had no gay friends that were close. I had gay acquaintances, but no one that was close to me. I didn't discover uh, some sort of confusion in my own gender or orientation. No one in my family came out. It was just the Bible. It was praying and it was reading the scriptures and going to school to learn to read the Greek and the Hebrew that did this to me. And I was angry about it. I was not happy with this because I wanted to be a Baptist pastor. And I knew that my career was probably going to be vastly limited by this revelation. And so I had to decide whether I would live by what I thought the Bible was saying, which is what I was taught to do, or if I'd go along to get along and culturally accommodate the homophobia in the church. And I decided I couldn't. And thus thought I ended my career. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't. I, I found moderate churches, some that were willing to talk to me and hire me, like Townview, which was already a bit of a maverick. This was a Southern Baptist church. Uh, It was founded by the Southern Baptist denomination. They put us here. They looked at this community and said, there's not a Southern Baptist church for these people. Let's start one. That's how my church came about uh, 32 years ago. And they've always sort of been mavericks. They've put women in leadership roles. This has been a, a, um, a racially diverse church, a background diverse church. That that's relatively rare, um, and so it's always it was already purple. We just sort of didn't talk about it, you know. Don't ask, don't tell. But 2018, 2019, we start having uh, some gay families visit. Someone there's there's a mystery in our story that someone put Townview 
on GayChurch.com, a resource for LGBT folks looking for a safe church. Someone put us on there as a safe church. We don't know who did it. Um, I've been accused of doing it. I did not. <laughs> I, we don't know. But our name got on there and people started showing up. And we were kind to them and we were loving to them. Our most conservative and some of our folks that are deeply homophobic were kind as long as they knew their place. Because that's what a lot of churches will do. A lot of churches will say they're welcoming. Um, a lot of churches will let gay folks visit or worship with them. But it's like letting someone into your parlor, but not the kitchen. Um, membership wasn't on the table. Uh, communion wasn't offered to them. You know, things like that. We're not going to baptize you. You can't be a member. You can't vote. Uh, you can't lead. But you can sit and watch. We'll be nice to you. Uh, so that's where we sort of were. And then a, a gay couple, two dads with three who had adopted three sons, uh, asked if they could be members. And our policy for membership stated all who profess faith in Jesus and have been baptized can be members. So we had to have a debate over what all meant. So we have um, two full-time pastors. We're the same currently full-time pastors that were at the beginning of this journey. And we sat down and we sort of made a nine-month plan. Here's how we're going to have these conversations. These are the way, these are the programs. We'll have room for debate. We'll have groups for Bible study. We'll have groups for prayers. We'll have storytelling sessions. We'll have deep uh, study. We'll have sermon series. We'll have guest speakers. We built this whole dream of a process that would take nine months and then we would vote. We went to our deacon body, uh, leaders who here at Townview, they're not decision-making body. They're an extension of pastoral care. They do ministry, um, but they're also our membership committee. They're the people who help decide what it means to be a member here. And so we said, we have some gay folks that want to be members and they, they are faithful Christians who are trying to follow Jesus and love each other and love their kids, and they want a place to do church, and we'd like to talk about it. And some of the deacons walked out of that meeting and went to several of the Sunday school classes and said, the pastors are throwing out the Bible, and we have to stop it. And, so, and it got very, very ugly, horribly ugly, incredibly fast. And it was, so our plan was nine months, but it was less than nine weeks later that we voted. And when we voted, the vote was unanimous in its approval because the people that were opposed just left. They did not go to a single talk. They didn't sit down for a debate or a, a discussion. They hurled insults. They tried to stage a coup. And when it didn't work, they just left people who we visited in hospitals, people whose family members we've buried, whose births we've attended, whose weddings we've done, just left. Didn't say a word. Some of them said nasty words, but they just left because they couldn't have the conversation. And so we voted and unanimously approved to add a line to our membership uh, documents. So now it says 
all who profess faith in Jesus Christ and have been baptized regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity will be welcomed into the membership of Townview Baptist without exception. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. The, this movement cost us a third of our people, a third of our staff, and half of our money. Um, and then we were kicked out of our denomination, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, which wasn't surprising. We were actually surprised with how long it took. It is revealing that when they kicked us out, and there's articles all over the internet about this. If you Google Townview Baptist, we're easy to find. Um, they kicked us out with several other churches. I think there were six. Two churches had affirmed gay members. The others were churches that refused to fire pastors who had committed sexual uh, assault or misconduct against their congregations because they grouped those into the same category. And so that's how we find ourselves today. We are now affiliated with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is a, a moderate body that kind of has a libertarian policy on this. They don't tell local churches how to think on this and think that diversity is actually a strength. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Jeremy, I'm going to quote another preacher. I think you may have heard his name before. Quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. By Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Jeremy, I want to thank you for bending that arc a little bit more in your life and in your community. Jeremy, I want to thank you for coming on to my podcast. Any last thoughts? There's, I, I have um, at eye level on my desk, another Martin Luther King quote. Um, and it's, it's at eye level just to the right of my computer. So I see it a thousand times a day. And it's a section from the letter from a Birmingham jail. And he says, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. That's, that's me. The Negro's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. We must never be more devoted to order than justice. Thank you. Thank you. Jeremy, where can people find you online? Thanks for asking, Hector. So I am on two other podcasts that I co-host. One of them is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, where I, along with Dr. David Gushy, one of the leading Christian ethical voices in the world today, uh, discuss how to do Christian ethics as how to live in following Jesus, along with some of the framework for how to think on those things, and we address uh, big uh, stories as they come up in the news, big cultural or current events that require uh, some unpacking from a Christian perspective. We do that there as well. I'm also the one of the co-hosts on the Virtually Church podcast, where we ask questions about technology, values, and the church. Uh, it's That's been directly inspired by the pandemic and we're very excited to just today have recorded the first episode of our second season. Links to podcasts, writings, videos, sermons, all my social media can be found at RevJeremyHall.com. This episode is titled Understanding Christianity Part 1 with Reverend Jeremy Hall. And yes, as you guessed, 
I'm definitely going to have him back on. Jeremy, again, thank you. This has been the Life Teacher Podcast. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>